Welcome to Politics Done Differently, a no-frills political podcast for the everyday voter, aiming to engage Australians in the political agenda. Hosted by Katarina Sullivan, businesswoman, award-winning sustainability expert, and political junkie. This episode of Politics Done Differently was brought to you by GNX Leaders, a workshop and mentoring company inspiring the next generation of leaders to embark on a journey of social entrepreneurship in order to create a more prosperous, peaceful and sustainable planet. Welcome to another episode of Politics Done Differently. I'm excited not to be in Parliament House today because I won't be fighting with division bells, but we are meeting with a federal politician, Senator Katie Gallagher for the ACT, who is a member of the Labour Party, and I'm very excited to have you on the show, Senator. Thanks so much. We're both excited to be out of Parliament House, believe me. (laughs) (laughs) What was the thing that got you into politics? Um, I sort of... unusual path to politics I think um, I was a member of the Labor Party but I wasn't an active you know activist within it I, I, I knew that's where my politics where I sort of found my politics um, and I was you know a paid up member I went to meetings but I had never ever thought of um, going to the next level in, in fact even being an official within the branch um, but what happened um, you know, uh, things that happen in your life, I think, change the paths you take at times. And when I was about 27, um, my partner, who my fiance, who I was having a baby with, was killed in a car accident. And that, he was very active in the party. And he was always the one that would have been seen to go on and become a politician, I think. Um, after he died, the Labor Party really, I don't know, put their arms around me and looked after me and my daughter really well. Um, there was a real kindness and solidarity, a community almost, that helped to me get on back on track and also you know, have a, a sense of family um, around my daughter um, and a sh- sort of shared love of her. So I'd sort of, you know, I, I don't know, I'd... I'd the Labor Party was a lot to me at the time. Um, so to cut a long story short, that um, in 2001, so my little girl was four by then, um, I was back at work, I was sort of getting my life together after that big upheaval. And um, here locally, we didn't have any women in the Labor Party uh, in the ACT Parliament. And so a group of us thought, well, you got to put your hand up. You know, we have to have more women put their hand up if we want women to be elected. We can't just sit and moan and and sort of go on about how all the boys take all the positions. Uh, and so we went. I went around with a group of women trying to recruit other women we thought would be good to stand as candidates. And even at that point, still hadn't thought that I would be one of those until one of these women tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Well, what about you? You know, you're a local. You've, you know, you're involved in your community. Why don't you think about it?" And uh, so I did, um, but with the expectation that I wouldn't win because I didn't want to become a politician, <laughs> but I did want to put more women on the ticket, on the yeah. Labor ticket. I didn't think it would be right for me with as a single parent with a, a four-year-old to be taking that path. I thought it would be too much, but I'd also been in hiding for a few years uh, post-Brett's accident and 
thought that it would be a good professional development exercise. Like I thought, oh, it'll force me out, it'll force me to go to functions and things like that. Um, so anyway, I did, I became a candidate and um, in the end, I think in the 2001 election, I, I was the seventh candidate elected in Malonglo, in the, uh, the seat of, old seat of Malonglo, by 70 votes. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was, it took, I think, two weeks after the election to work out who was going to be elected and I, I kind of limped over the line, really. Yeah. Could have gone to anyone, went to me, so... I was like accidentally elected, really. <laughs> How did you feel in that moment, having not expected it or not really wanted to get into it, but then... Well, it was good in one way because I think one of the problems with hair clerk systems, which we have here in the ACT, is people work hard for a year to get elected. Like, it's a really hard commitment. There's no 30-day campaign. Um, and they put their lives on hold, basically. And this is across all parties. And so if you lose, and chances are you will, um, it's really hard. And so I, the whole campaign I'd gone, you're not going to win, you're not going to win, you're not going to win, and that's fine, this is just something you're doing. And so mentally, um, I think I'd sort of bolstered myself for, for loss, and in the end, limping over the line was like just a bit of a shock, really. I, I think I was in shock. I went to my first caucus meeting, I didn't even really know anyone. Um, I, I mean, I knew of them in the party, but I wasn't close to any of them. Had, hadn't really met John Stanhope before. Yeah. So it was a whole new world to me and something I wasn't practised in. I hadn't been a staffer. I hadn't worked for any Labor politicians. So it was a totally new world. And did you feel supported in that by the party? Yeah. Look, it's an unusual career. It is an unusual job to get in because you're elected by the people, so you're sort of your own boss. Um, and people expect you to know what you want to do and I think in many cases people do know what they want to do when they get elected but for me I was elected into government um, that was when Labor won the election we changed government so you know it was real like the whole it was no mucking around like yeah. we are now government after a few years decisions had to be taken policies were getting rolled out and I'd sort of been I hadn't been an active part of that so I had to really get across it pretty quick and I'd never spoken publicly I'd never done any public speaking and all of a sudden I was being asked to open fates and speak in front of you know hundreds of people and front up to things that I never expected doing so it was a huge year for me and and for my little girl at the time yeah and how did she cope with the transition of yeah, she's, I mean, she's 22 now and she's completely normal, so I sort of <laughs> assess that, that that went well. Um, she was good. Um, you know, it was a big change for her and I. My mother was alive then and so she did a lot of help with me that first year in politics. And then by the second year I was a minister. I'd been elected or selected as a minister and I set my mind to start changing some of the ways the parliament works so that women with small children could actually work in those jobs because it was incredibly hard to do it. Late nights, um, you know, no idea when you'd be finishing sometimes, ridiculous filibusters that would go, which are fine for, you know, 60-year-old men that had no one to go home to, but for someone who was trying to juggle a young family on her own, it was it was a, a tough call. But and I think that stops women from going in. So, you know, in my time in politics, we changed 
the walls of the assembly so we adjourned at 6.30 every day and we passed the same amount of legislation, did the same amount of work, just more efficiently. And now we've got, you know, 50% women in yeah. there from none. Yeah. From well, the Labor side. <laughs> yeah, to over 50% across yeah. the parliament. Uh, so, you know, these things do matter. Yeah. Oh, you can be seen as a trailblazer for a lot of those women oh. in ACT Labor. No, you don't like to think of yourself no. that way, but... <laughs> Perhaps. I hope that in, like, I think when you get into these jobs and you do, sometimes you don't have the opportunity to change things, Mm. but sometimes you do. And if you are in a position of power and influence where you can change them for the better and make it easier for people who come behind you, then you should do it. Um, And we did that. It was not just me, but all. Yeah. It was team effort. Mm. (laughs) You had a successful career in ACT government. What was the decision to make you switch to federal politics? Yeah, so I think that I'd been in um, ACT Parliament for um, 13 years and I'd had a long career as a minister, deputy chief minister and then chief minister. Um, I'd won the 2012 election and I think at sort of midpoint you do, you have to sort of think over well, what's next? You know, there is a life, a fixed term, I think, for politicians, and there should be, you know, you shouldn't hang around forever. Um, I'd always enjoyed the support of my community, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't outstay the welcome. So that was always at the front of my mind. The second thing was, I by, by then, I had two more children with my partner, and, you know, they had... Well, they hadn't suffered, but they we'd made... You know, my job had impacted on them for a long time. So I sort of, can I do another four years? Because that's the point where you have to make those decisions, go to the 2016 election. And so it's not just another four, you know, it's it's like 2016 and then at least another two years after that because mm. you can't, if you win, you can't just walk out. So people toss these things around in their head, I think. And for me, I was in that space and at the same time, Uh, Kate Lundy um, had made the decision to leave and uh, Bill Shorten and a few others came asking me to consider filling that vacancy in the Senate and also I think the other thing for me was not only that my federal colleagues wanted me up there, that Kate's departure had created a vacancy that probably couldn't commit to another four or five years in the ACT I think that would have been too long for me that would have been nearly 20 years people would have been sick of the side of me (laughs) and the other thing was Tony Abbott was Prime Minister so I think a combination of all of those um, and I really thought he was a terrible Prime Minister and I thought if there was the opportunity to help change that then I should be part of it so all of that contributed to my decision yeah and you chose to run for the upper house and there's only two of you to represent the mm-hmm. ACT. Uh, one of the things I like about having my own podcast is I can sort of talk about some of the issues that I feel concerned about yeah. as a local yeah. Canberran. The fact that we have a growing population um, and in the Senate we have a sixth of the representation of the state, say Tasmania. Mm. Um, how do you combat the challenge of making sure that ACT is fairly represented, given that we do have our growing population? Yeah, so that's... I mean, again, when I was in the Assembly, I dealt with that because I thought the same thing. We were so underrepresented, run, underrepresented, but 
where I had influence and control was the assembly. So the assembly moved from 17 to 25, and that was in recognition that the population had grown from 160,000 or so when self-government came in to almost 400,000, and there hadn't been any commensurate increase in, in representatives. Um, so that was important to me. I think one of the issues we've got federally is that the territories are a creature of the federal parliament. They're not enshrined in the constitution. They're created through legislation. And as you know, we didn't have any representation for a period of time. And then we were thankful that we got a house member. And then, you know, the, it's almost like the parliament has gifted us. The yes. states have gifted us the, you know, honor, the great honor of having two senators. Um, and so there isn't, an obvious trigger to increase that representation other than appealing to the goodwill and nature of all of the other federal parliament mm -hmm. uh, across the House and the Senate. So it, it leaves a big job really. Um, you know, I think it is really hard when you've got Tasmania with 12 and there's some lovely Tasmanian senators, nothing against them, but you've got two from the ACT. It does mean that you know, when it comes to important votes, um, we we don't have the proportionate say that others do. Um, I don't see that changing anytime soon. I mean, we got the third house seat because that's got a population base through the yes. AEC process, but the Senate uh, is a different ball game. And I just don't think, you know, I think for conservative governments particularly, they would have zero interest in increasing the size of the ACT Senate population because I think they know that that would give them more more labour and potentially Green. Yeah. Uh, so I think there probably is a bit of politics to it as well. Yeah. Well, it was lucky that we did have the third lower house seat created because it meant that you're, when you have to leave for the mm -hmm. citizenship and David Smith came in, he could still be a part of a parliament at the last election, which was fantastic. Yeah, and well, you back. <laughs> well, I was always coming back, believe me. Don't worry, I'd already made that clear. I, I wasn't going to come, I didn't want to come back in on a countback or anything like that. I felt that um, I would, I needed the confirmation from the people of the ACT that they wanted me back. And, and you know, the feeling I got on the polling clues and stuff was very positive. Uh, but nobody owns a seat. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a thing I have in politics. Nobody, just because you're there doesn't mean it's yours. Um, you know, and I think too often we think people, oh, because well, you're there, that means, you know, you're it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's dangerous. I think you've got to work for your seat. You've got to work through the party. Like I was going through a pre-selection process, which I was happy to do. We've got a 100% rank and file voting system in place in the ACT Labor Party so it meant that no I was on the phones when there was a pre-selection battle between um, David Smith and myself uh, before Gaze uh, made her intention to leave you know I was ringing party members so I mean that's all part of a healthy democracy is that you know the party gets to choose their preferred candidate and then the community gets to choose and you know I think that's really important and any view that you own a seat or a seat's yours and it was always yours is um, something to be rejected. Yeah. And you've been working in ACT politics at a territory and federal level for a while now. What do you see as the biggest challenges facing people in Canberra? 
Well, there's a lot. I mean, you know, at the federal level, I guess you lift it up a bit and so you think see things nationally. Um, so I think issues like climate change, uh, ones that are really concerning uh, Canberrans, um, you know, obvious with all the smoke and dry and drought uh, and the fact that Canberrans have always been pretty progressive on that issue and I think that's, you know, for me at the election that was no, the number one issue raised with me um, and I think it remains so. So trying to get something done on that um, and I think probably the other local one federally is uh, the public service, the role of the public service, um, you know, jobs, Canberra jobs, um, what this Prime Minister thinks the role of the public service is. Mm. Um, I think that's going to be a big issue over the next couple of years. I think locally you get a much different picture. Um, health will always be number one for people locally. Uh, and then I think followed by um, education, government services, mowing, mm -hmm. rates, charges, all yep. of those things. So they are quite different and I guess one of the things for me is I've got a good solid understanding of those local issues and I've, I've been learning and adapting I think to those big issues nationally. Yeah. And do you still advocate for some of those local issues when constituents approach you with ACT policy? Sure. Yeah. Like every, everyone knows. It's so funny because senators in larger states or senators in the states are not are not people that you'd recognise in the street, yeah. unless you're Penny Wong, of yeah. course. Um, and so many of them don't have any contact with constituents mm -hmm. at all, unless they've got an office and people walk in. Whereas in the ACT, I think a couple of things, people know me and you know know my background, but also um, it's such a small community that people see you, you're basically a house member for the purposes of constituents, which is yeah. fine. So yeah, I get quite a bit of um, correspondence from people locally about local issues. So I do a bit of work with um, Andrew and his team mm -hmm. to sort that through and um, you know a fair bit of traffic on federal issues as well. So I like that. I actually was really, I hadn't thought that through when I came into the Senate that I really wasn't going to have contact with constituents um, and so I'm pleased the way Canberrans treat me that they, I'm different to say a Queensland Senator who, who would never deal with a, a constituent issue at all. Yeah. No, that's fantastic that you still get that interaction. Well, that's what I like. Your ear to the ground of yeah. what the issues and are. In politics, you've got to like people. Like, that's what the job's about. You're the people's representative. Mm. You're not better than them or you don't know more than them, but you're there to try and speak up for your community as their representative. And so if you're not having contact with them, I think it's a little bit odd. Yeah. And you have a... Uh, coalition colleague mm -hmm. in the Senate um, that represents ACT with you. What's your relationship like with Zed Kaselja? Because obviously you have to attend events together and yeah. promote the ACT together. Yeah, look, it's fine. I mean, we have been, you know, um, combatants in the field for mm -hmm. a long time. Yeah. So, you know, he was elected, I think the term, maybe 2004, I think. Mm -hmm. So he was in the assembly a fair while before he left. Um, you know, I got to know him reasonably well. 
you know, we have to do two TV interviews together, which have you sitting in the green room on small chairs. So, yeah. you know, like you have to have some sort of relationship. Yeah. Um, we don't talk politics very much. We would talk family, um, sport, things like that. Yeah. Um, because our views on politics are just poles apart. So I think at a human level, you have a, a functional relationship and polite relationship yeah. um, that you have to have. Um, but that's probably where the similarities end. Yeah. And the, some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that happens in Parliament House is obviously committees and parliamentary friendship groups. What kind of involvement do you have with those? Yeah, so on the committees, I, I have a fair bit to do with um, the finance and economics committees, and that's really linked to my shadow portfolios. Um, but I'm also manager of opposition business, so it means I have a sort of an overseeing role on who's on what and, you know, making sure that Labor's well represented across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, but estimates really would be my focus in terms of committee work. Um, in terms of parliamentary friendship groups, look, I find them a little bit funny in that there's so many of them. Yes. And so I've sort of taken a rule that I don't join any of them because mm-hmm. I didn't want to join some of them and then it looked like you don't care about other issues. So yeah. I thought a blanket kind of... Like, I'm a big supporter of most of what you all do, but I don't have to be a member of any of it. Um, But I have broken the rule to be... I'm a co-chair of the um, Parliamentary Friends for a Republic. So um, Jason Falinski, who's the Liberal member, and I um, co-chair that. Um, So that's my one one break in in the um, Parliamentary Friend drought is for that. And so that's... um, Just over the next few years, we'll, we'll do, you know, events and things. So you're obviously passionate about Australia becoming a republic. Um, yeah, which is great, having been kicked out of the parliament for being English or <laughs> British. <laughs> um, there are obviously some of our listeners who don't quite understand the difference between the fact that we're you know, governed as a constitutional monarchy at the moment and what, what would it mean for us to become a republic? Yeah, well, I guess um, at a very basic level, it's about who's your head of state. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the moment, the Queen is. And um, I've always felt from pretty young that that was was weird. Um, You know, I don't know how many Australians have that much affinity or connection with the monarch as the head of state for Australia. And and so it's sort of a principle-based thing because it's not as if anyone's world would change dramatically. I mean, we are largely as a constitutional monarchy um but with our own um you know democratic processes you know it's not as if the queen's looking over our shoulder all the time watching what's going on in fact it's the opposite the the the, um you know she's taken a view that you stay out of politics rather than get in which so i think in terms of you know how it would how a republic would translate on on an everyday level they're it's not about that. It's more a principle-based thing about how an Australia. I feel very strongly that an Australian should be the yeah. head of state. As to how that happens and what model you use and how you get there, I think that's all open for discussion. But I, I fundamentally believe that you know we're old enough to um, look after ourselves. Yeah. It would obviously have impacted someone like Gough Whitlam, maybe. <laughs> yes, but, of course. Yeah. yeah, no, of course. Um, yeah, and, but I wouldn't say it's history that has has sort of got, you know, 
meant that, that that's not what drives me. I again think what happened to Gough was an outrage as it, and nobody on any side of politics has any ever gone anywhere near back to you know blocking supply and creating that crisis. But in terms of my own thinking, it's really just well why why should the Queen or Prince Charles or anyone else come de- coming down be be the head of state? Yep. That's a very good question to raise. <laughs> One that I've not quite understood. But I have to accept there's a lot of people that do like. I mean, this is the issue with the Republic is, you know, there are, we lost the referendum, you know, the ACT voted for it, of course, Um, but, you know, we lost it. So in these big national debates, we haven't necessarily been able to bring people together with a shared view. And, you know, that's a challenge that, you know, we have not just around the Republic, but of course in constitutional recognition for First Australians and things like that, which I think probably there is much more agreement on. As we go down the path, I think we've got to be better about having conversations, disagreeing, but trying to find a consensus point in the middle because, you know, the reality is not everyone thinks like me or you. Yeah. And you mentioned the referendum before. The ACT has had a history of being quite um, progressive in their voting the referendum and the plebiscite for Mm -hmm. the marriage equality debate. and I'm sure if we had a referendum or plebiscite on climate change, it would also yeah. be very progressive. Um, why do you think we have such a progressive area that's so conscious of these issues? Well, I think a lot of it goes to, um, you know, the, the affluence of our community, or the relative affluence, um, acknowledging that there are pockets of, you know, serious disadvantage across the ACT, but overwhelmingly... You know, our kids do well at school. They're coming from families with educated parents. Um, we've got great educational opportunities here. Um, the nature of our big industry, our BHP, is the public service, which is a policy, well, up to today, has been a policy developing institution. So we've got a lot of people, you know, involved in the debates. We've got ANU and UC. You know, a lot of our big industry here is knowledge based. So you're dealing with a you know a pretty educated community um, who is actively engaged. I think that's part of being a small community means that you've got a great way into being involved in politics yeah. and those debates. And I think that all matters. Um, so you know, we I think the ACT is obviously often seen as this like little progressive. Um, you know, jurisdiction, and it is. The reality is it is. They're prepared to have a go on things and to test out new ideas. Um, and as, as we grow, that might change a little bit. Um, but to the large part, I think you can link it down to the nature of the work we do and the level of qualifications that people have and access to good education. Sure. And a lot of other states sort of look at the ACT saying that's a bit of an anom- anomaly in Australia. <laughs> Um, it's too early in the morning for me to say that word. <laughs> the fact that you know, we are quite small and progressive and we're so highly educated. Do you think sometimes other states forget to look at us as sort of the leaders in the country and look to the ACT for ways to actually sort of implement some of our policies and legislation in their states? It's a good question. I think the truthful answer is 
jurisdictions pick and choose what they like. So if we're doing something like um, this year, the ACT government's trial pill testing, mm -hmm. um, which is sort of leading the way and based on evidence and supported by the community and all of that, um, you know, the response from outside will be, you know, it's just the ACT, you know, we know better, we're bigger and we've got, you know, there's more issues to consider. But I think when there's something that other states want to do, they're prepared and say, oh, look, it's like industrial manslaughter. We brought in those laws back in, I don't know, 2004 or five, I think, you know, and now Queensland's looking at them. And so in that do debate, they'll go, oh, they've been in the ACT for 10 years or more now and it has, the sky hasn't fallen in. So mm -hmm. the reality is I think people pick and choose based on what they want to, but for the large extent, the ACT really has to punch pretty hard to be heard, um, you know, and I say that after having sat on COAG for, you know, eight years and I've seen, you know, you can, people pick you up as an example or they'll drop you as far away from them as possible based on what the issue is. And I think the important thing for the ACT is to always to speak with an honest voice regardless of whether you're going to be heard or dismissed or what because you know it's about integrity I think and and principles in politics and you've got to stick to those regardless of how people perceive you. You mentioned before that you get heavily involved in the estimates at Parliament House. Could you tell us a little bit more about that process? Um, what the estimates are because I'm sure a lot of a lot of what? listeners people don't watch them. It's <laughs> <laughs> an outrage. Um, okay, so estimates is a really important part of the Senate scrutiny or the Parliament, but it, the Senate does it. Uh, the Senate scrutiny role uh, in terms of um, holding executive government to account. So it happens three times a year. Um, it happens uh, obviously after budget. So we have budget estimates which go for two weeks. Uh, and the committees, we have various committees, community services, uh, legal and constitutional affairs, uh, foreign affairs and trade, economics, finance, public admin, environment. So there's a number of committees that will sit. Um, at budget estimates, they sit for a week each. So you have five days of, he or four days of hearings for each committee. Uh, they go from 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. and you basically have public servants fronting the parliament and they get questioned by senators about pretty much anything to do with their department. But you've meant to loosely link it to the budget, mm -hmm. budget estimates. In October, um, we usually link it to the annual reports. Um, it's a shorter estimates period of a week. And then again in February, we have additional estimates for a week. So it's three times a year and it's it's a really useful way, if you use the time properly, to get information from departments um, and have questions answered about what they're doing, um, you know, issues that may have come up in the public, um, pursuing um, stories. But basically, you know, it's the powers of the estimates committee are considerable to call for documents, to call witnesses, to uh, require questions to be answered. It's a much more thorough pre process than, say, question time in yep. the Senate. Yeah. Mm. And of course, that links the uh, what's happening in Parliament House to what's happening in the government departments around Australia. That's right. Yes. It requires a lot of communication between the two to make yeah. sure that everything's running smoothly. Yeah. So, for example, I guess one of the big things has been this illegal robo debt scheme. 
that's we have pursued that for hours in estimates like who's affected how much money have you been have you taken um, what's the process when people um, dispute it you know who started it how much money have you used to roll it out who's mm -hmm. in charge you know what other providers have been involved so there's a whole you can get a lot more information than perhaps a minister is willing to provide um, through standard parliamentary scrutiny. So it's a really important um, tool, yeah. I think, um, to keep the Australian public informed about what's happening. And what's your power as a senator on one of those committees to then correct some of the mistakes? For example, you brought up RoboDebt, don't know if you can talk about that at the mm -hmm. moment, um, but when you realise that there has been an issue in the public service, how do you then as a senator say, right, well, this is how we fix it? Yeah. So, well, I mean, it's hard as a non-government senator to do that. I mean, mm. the job isn't of the Senate estimates isn't to become executive government, yeah. but it's to hold executive government to account. So if problems are identified through Senate estimates, um, you know, airing them publicly, so they're all online and um, you know media listening all the time so it's a very public forum so that's one way mm -hmm. you do it basically through raising the issues and making it uncomfortable for the government um, with the information you've found but also because we come back in October and February you can keep pursuing them so the onus then is on the department to fix it you know, so it's not so much Senate estimates fixing it, but if there is a problem and the problem's identified, you can be almost guaranteed mm -hmm. by the next time they show up, they will either have fixed it or there'll be a plan to fix it. And that's part of it. I mean, we don't want there to be problems mm -hmm. in the public service. We want problems when they're identified to be fixed. Sure. And, of course, you have media releases that come out on your website about the work that you do. Do you think that the public are engaged with the news that you bring out or only when they see something happen in major media? Mm. Well, I think there are, there's certainly some who watch everything I do. Mm -hmm. It's not a large part of them, <laughs> I wouldn't say. Um, but there's definitely, you know, you can build up a little follower base mm -hmm. and, and also different bases. Like, I think the people that read my emails and media might be different to the people that watch my dog on Instagram, sure. you know? Like, so <laughs> there's different ways that you can connect with people. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in, you know, after having spent, you know, 13 or 14 years on TV almost every night um, in ACT Gov, um, it is a big change going now going federal um, and tr you know trying to get coverage for what you're doing it's it's really hard so I when I first moved to federal I got a lot of people ringing here going you know is she all right is she sick I'm not seeing her on the tv every day yeah. mm -hmm. um, you know I had people dropping in they were worried about me and where I'd gone and so um, we were just trying to say to those people you're just going to have to follow you know join my email list or whatever because I'm not going to be on the news every day so it is hard, um, but I think if you want to be engaged and you do follow people through politics, you know, at the platforms available mean people can stay much better involved, you know, up to date with what you're doing, but you've got to make that decision yourself. Yeah. What are some other ways people can get involved in the democratic process in a more meaningful way, especially for the frustrated Canberrans out there who want to see more action on things yeah. like climate change? Well, it's just so many ways, really. I mean, I think um, 
you know, it's a real individual choice. But here in the ACT, there's so many. Like, if you don't want to, obviously, there's an avenue through joining up a formal political party, um, you know, and getting involved that way, which, you know, I can't speak for the Liberal Party or Greens, but in Labor, that means, you know, not only do you join and become a member, but you have access to, like, if we take climate change as an example, the Labor Environment Action um, Network, Lean, who've been doing a lot of, you know, so that you get access into specialist kind of policy thinking in yeah. the pol political space. But if you don't want to do that or that's too big a step, you know, there's so many different groups, community groups, um, you know, Facebook groups, any kind of, there's so many of them that are around particular interest areas that people can join. For people that don't want to join, and I think this is one of the issues we're dealing with in terms of political engagement um, at the moment, you know, if you're not a joiner, well, what does that mean for you? Um, and I think, again, it comes back to individuals and how they want to participate. Do they just, you know, being an informed voter is absolutely legitimate too. You know, that can be the extent. Yeah. Being an uninformed voter is legitimate, <laughs> you know, and there's many of those. But, you know, there's so many options available to people. I mean, I think part of the job is on the political parties to work out how do we better connect into the community group, you know, the community, so that we're not, we are, you know, staying in touch with what they're after as well. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a perfect solution to that. You know, you've got, again, different ways. People email me, they send me letters. You know, they'll certainly give me feedback if they think I've said something <laughs> wrong. Um, you know, but part of my job is to make sure I am out and talking and listening to what people say and not just going in with my mind made up on everything. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic that you do take the views of the constituents to Parliament and you know, fulfil your role as a yeah. representative of the people here. One of the last questions I want to ask is about young people. Mm. Um, so you've obviously got your own family, so mm -hmm. you can get really in touch with the views do, of young yeah. people. Um, and I do remember a while back one of my friends was doing relief at Turner Primary. Yeah. And he said, oh, I had this girl today who was questioning me and I wish you were in the classroom. <laughs> because she kept asking me about politics because her mom's Katie Gallagher. Oh, right. Yeah, I know who that'll be. Oh, that's child number three, that yeah. one. Yeah, she's a piece of work. <laughs> um, what do you think is the most important way that we can support our young people in this democracy that we have? Well, I think we've got a, a the most important thing and the most, I think, concerning development we've had in my time in politics is the loss of trust in democracy and young people earning their trust and, um, you know, having them build back that trust into democracy is... I think one of the biggest pieces of work we all have as federal representatives, um, you know, the lack of trust in institutions and democratic processes, you know, is so bad and, you know, at times it's a reflection on the politicians themselves that have caused that is we have to deal with that because, you know, the strength of democracy is only there based on the trust and given by the people. Um, and when that fractures, then we'll see fractures right across society. So, you know, I think 
one of the things we have to deal with. You know, I think the plebiscite was good in that regard. Like, there's so many bad things about that plebiscite. Like, it should never have happened. We shouldn't have put people's families out and the legitimacy of people's families out to a vote. But it did, if you could take one tiny good thing out of it, it would be that it demonstrated that when you, you know, when you participate, um, when you have a majority vote, um, things can change, and they did. Um, I wish we'd gone about it a different way, but I think looking at the people on the streets of Braddon that night when that vote went through, um, the amount of young people, I have not seen um, that kind of gathering in my time in politics, not with that demographic. The other example is the school strikes for climate. You know, I went to the ones here, and again, I think that's part of it, is showing young people that what you say matters, that people are listening, and hopefully it will translate into some sort of change. Um, but it's, you know, again, a work in progress, and I think politicians have, to, you know, we're old and, you know, from young people probably seen as, you know, too far removed to get excited about, but part of it is through our behaviour and the way we conduct ourselves is part is probably the area that we can control the most in terms of integrity and trust and building that back. Mm. And that's something that, you know, I, I hold dearly to myself. It's pretty much all you have in politics is your own, is your brand. And for me, it's around integrity and honesty. And, you know, I think we need a bit more of that yeah. in politics. Well, I think you're leading the way as oh, setting yeah. an example for that in the ACT, both with your time in territory government and federal government. Um, and my final question to you is, we've got a lot of doom and gloom sort of happening at the moment on environmental scale, social scale, and what would be your message of hope for young people, all people, about the future of Australia politically? Yes, so that's another very good question and I, it deserves a serious answer, not, not um, you know, a flippant one. It's, I think, in my knowledge of, sort of the history of politics, is there's always challenges, right? Um, and someone very wise um, once said to me, Katie, with a problem, no matter how big the problem is, there's always a pathway through. You've just got to believe, you've just got to find the right pathway. And that has always stuck with me. I think I heard it my first year in politics. And every time I have been confronted with a problem that just seems too huge and just completely like, oh my God, I'm just, I'm just gonna go, put my hands up and go to bed, I can't deal with it. Uh, that advice comes through and I think it's right. Um, I haven't yet, come across a problem that I haven't been at well that we haven't been able to navigate through you've got to find the process and I sort of I feel like that about things nationally as well like as you know humans over time we've always had major issues to deal with but eventually the pathway's been found consensus has been reached and we've worked through it so I think at times it seems like there's so many issues and it's all a bit out of control and we can't you know, there's not going to be that pathway, but I, I honestly, I wouldn't be in politics if I didn't think there was. Um, we've got, you know, we take responsibility uh, for the bits that we can control in terms of the fact that we have a Liberal government um, in power that 
in relation to climate change uh, isn't taking strong action on it. You know, we don't just sit there and point the finger and say, oh, it's all there to blame. We have to fix up our house, mm -hmm. which we're doing, uh, and build a broad consensus around that policy going forward uh, so that we're not in this position again. And, you know, step by step on each of those issues, whether it be climate, whether it be the changing nature of the economy, uh, you, part of your job is also to highlight the opportunities um, and to find a path around them too. So if we take the economy, you know, people feeling left out of it or worried about jobs or worried about the changing nature of work, you know, and they are all legitimate and we've got to deal with them. Um, the other side of them is more jobs, more control, you know, working hours that you want to work, perhaps working at home, um, you know, less travelling in cars and sitting in traffic jams, you know, they, so there are opportunities that come with change, um, but it's our job as leaders and young people who want to be leaders to just find that right path through. Senator, thank you so much for your time. And I'm thank sure you. our listeners have learned a lot about what it means to be a fantastic politician. Oh. Um, <laughs> Very kind. <laughs> and we look forward to seeing you back on the show at some point soon. Yeah, love to. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to Politics Done Differently. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more, please go back through our library for more insightful interviews. Please subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at PD Differently. If you want to get involved in the conversation, please hashtag PD Differently. We look forward to seeing you next episode.